The University of Kansas Health System is proud to be the official healthcare provider of the Kansas City Current. From youth athletes to the pros, we put player care first to turn their dreams into reality. Learn more at kansashealthsystem.com slash kccurrent. Garrettson and Toth presents The Shift with Jack Johnson on ESPN Kansas City. 1510 a.m. and 94.5 FM. Another day, another edition of The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 a.m. ESPN Kansas City. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. Shout out to our presenting sponsors, starting with Garrettson and Toth. They handle the most complex felony, federal, or state criminal defense cases. You'll find them in doing that successfully, helping criminal defendants all over the Kansas City area and Northeast Kansas for years. Also, be sure to visit Kim Howard and Associates Agency at 105th and Metcalf in Overland Park, or give Kim and her team a call at 913-649-2002. That's 913-649-2002 for a quote on your home and auto insurance today. Well, we'll have plenty to get into today, ranging from NFL talk. We'll talk some Royals baseballs. They went a perfect 3-0 and in their first three spring training games over the weekend. We'll tell you what that means, and we'll also recap what happened in college basketball on Saturdays. Both Kansas and Kansas State walked away as winners. But I thought it would be fitting, uh, though now we're probably... I guess it's been three weeks since the Super Bowl victory for the Kansas City Chiefs. Now the focus is going to be on the offseason, what moves they can make, and more importantly, what are they going to do with the NFL draft, which will be hosted here in Kansas City, down by Union Station. And the Chiefs have more than 10 picks in the draft. They'll probably trade a couple of them or package a couple of them to either move up or trade for picks next season. And the Chiefs do have the 31st overall pick in the draft. Uh, I think that the common perception of the of a 30, 31, or 32nd pick is usually just an early second-round pick. In my opinion, it's about taking the best available at that point. Now, if there was a really good quarterback at that spot, the Chiefs aren't taking them. But when you look at the best possible player being an edge rusher or a linebacker or a cornerback or a nose tackle on the defensive side, I think it doesn't really matter who you pick because you're not getting a top-10 type of talent. We saw last year the Chiefs needed to trade up to get a guy like Trent McDuffie, who is a blue-chip prospect, and George Karloftis fell to 30, but George Karloftis was never going to be a top-10 selection. Probably not even a top-15 selection. Hell, likely not a top-20 selection. But I thought it would be good to go over CBS's most recent mock draft, and we've seen names thrown about over the last couple of weeks. I've seen a wide receiver be mocked to Kansas City at 31. I've seen an edge rusher be mocked to Kansas City. I've seen a cornerback. I've seen a safety. I've seen all of it. Uh, The only position I really haven't seen is running back and quarterback, and I think that's very fitting because the Chiefs just used a seventh-round pick on Isaiah Pacheco, and he ran for over 1,000 yards, including the regular season and postseason this year. There is zero reason to select a running back anywhere in this draft. I think you should go the undrafted free agent route or re-sign Jarek McKinnon and find a way to go out and bring somebody else in through free agency or off waivers if they were to be cut going into camp. But right now, per CBS, and this was a mock draft done by Ryan Wilson. This came out about three hours ago. He has the Kansas City Chiefs with the 31st pick. And I want to make sure I pronounce this guy's name right because I've seen it probably mocked more than any other player. B.J. Ojulari, the edge rusher out of LSU. He's the 73rd prospect ranked. He's the 12th ranked player at his own position. Per Wilson, he says Ojulari, whose brother played at Georgia and plays for the Giants, had a solid campaign for the Tigers, and he has many of the same explosive qualities that made his brother so hard to block for the Bulldogs. Ojulari could end up being better than Aziz, and that's saying something. I really would love this look for Kansas City to go for an edge rusher. I think the two guys that really stand out to me, and maybe because I'm rooting for a little bit of a hometown pick, I love Felix Inudike Uzama out of Kansas State. He's not the biggest guy in the draft, but he's incredibly explosive. It might be a little bit of a reach to go with him at 31, but you never really know how the draft's going to fall. You never know which guy's going to be picked a little bit early. Some other teams are definitely going to reach. That's just the common reality of the NFL draft. Some guys that were mocked to be late second guys or early thirds sometimes are reached for late in the first round. 
But right now, per CBS, and I have seen B.J. Ojolari be mocked to Kansas City more than any other team. I have also seen a guy by the name of Quentin Johnston, who was great for TCU, the big wideout who would be likely a number one type of wide receiver talent-wise in two to three years. But Quentin Johnson was another guy I saw mocked to Kansas City. And I guess it brings up the question where you stand with who the Chiefs take at 31. It's also not out of the possibility or out of the realm of possibility or out of the question that the Kansas City Chiefs would package a couple of their second or third round picks and move up in the first round. Maybe package your 31, package your second, and you can move up as high as 15 or 16. I mean, think about if Brett Veach really wanted to go after somebody. That's the luxury you have with having 11 or 12 picks. You're not going to use all of them. That's just the reality of it. You're not going to use 12 picks on 12 players, and all those 12 players are going to make the team. So there's no sense in using all of those picks because those guys are going to be cut. You're going to have to make cuts with some of the guys you would take in the draft. So it's smart to move up in the draft. And maybe Brett Veach wants to move up in the third round or move up in the second round and and not be as aggressive in the first round. I know the theatrics of it. You're drafting in Kansas City. I mean, can you imagine the place if they found out Kansas City moved up from 31 to like 16 or 17? The crowd's reaction to that, it'd be chaotic because it's the first time the NFL draft in the last, I mean, it probably is ever. I can't remember another time that Kansas City even hosting the draft, and I know that they didn't do more of a, a theatrical performance with the NFL draft until about, what, 40, 50 years ago? So yeah, Kansas City, this is their first go-around in having the NFL draft. But when you look at what is on the table for Kansas City when going after an edge rusher, a cornerback, and I think the position of need has been the same for Kansas City for the last three to four years. I mean, I think with the exception of 2020, when the Chiefs oddly took Clyde Edwards-Alaire with the last pick in the draft, or the first round, that is, it was a bit of a head-scratcher because Kansas City had just won a Super Bowl on the backs of Darrell Williams and Damian Williams in the running game. So there was no need to go out there and add another running back. And now we've seen for the career, the early career of Clyde Edwards-Alaire, it hasn't really panned out. And the Chiefs are expected to decline that fifth-year option, making him a free agent. Other than that, though, and I think even going into that draft, people thought that Christian Fulton out of LSU, Clyde's teammate, would be the pick of choice for Kansas City. The Chiefs needed to go with a guy for the secondary. They always need an edge rusher. And I think, more importantly, this year, I mean, who knows if Frank Clark comes back? Who knows what the Chiefs do with Chris Jones? You have George Karloftis. You have Mike Dana. You could probably bring back Carlos Dunlap on a cheap deal. But you need edge rushers for the future. You need to hit on those guys for the future. And getting a guy like B.J. Ojolari, you have a very one young one-two punch in George Karloftis and B.J. Ojolari on opposite ends of each other. And if you maintain Chris Jones, maybe you bring back Frank Clark on a team-friendly deal. I'm okay with the front four you would have. You want to keep Colin Saunders instead of Derek Nottie? I'm quite fine with who you have as depth up front. But I'm also okay if the Chiefs go out there and take a wide receiver with the 31st pick. I'm also okay if they take a cornerback and let Legereus Sneed walk or trade Legereus Sneed. There's a couple different routes they can go, and the absolute luxury the Chiefs have with the 31st pick is they hit on a lot of guys in last year's draft. They are already younger on the defensive side of the ball. This isn't as dire as it was last year where they needed to fill a lot of positions. The good thing now to understand is whoever the Chiefs are taking at 31, they're not going to be a day one starter. They could start at some point in the year. But I kind of compare it to the George Karloftis pick. George Karloftis was not starting in week one or week two. He was getting reps. He was on the field. He was playing 40, 50, 60% of the snaps. But he's not an every-down, day-one starter. And you don't find those guys at picks 31, 32, hell, probably not even 29 or 30. So the Chiefs are all about then getting guys that are rotational pieces early on. And I mean, when you are a Super Bowl contender, that's good for your roster. Just because you take a guy in the first round doesn't, need, doesn't mean he needs to be the top guy at his position. It's okay for that guy to be a rotational piece because the roster is so damn loaded. I mean, you tell me right now, if the Chiefs bring back Frank Clark and bring back Carlos Dunlap and their starting four is Clark, Dunlap, Jones, and Saunders, 
or Karloftis opposite of Frank Clark instead of Dunlap. I mean, those are going to be the guys. They're not going to move those guys off their position for a rookie, a 31st pick. That's just not going to happen because also even guys like B.J. Ojolari, guys like Felix Enudike Uzama, they're not week one starters. They're not week two starters. They're guys that you want to eventually take that spot like George Karloftis did. But I think week one starters are usually in picks one to 25-ish. And it really depends on what the roster looks like. The Chiefs have won two Super Bowls in the last four years, and a lot of their guys on defense are on rookie contracts. Offensively, yeah, I think a wide receiver could start if they had Quinton Johnson fall into their laps, the big wide out of TCU, or you have a guy like Jalen Hyatt fall to you at 31. They could be week one starters because of how the Chiefs' wide receiver core is at the moment. We don't know if Juju Smith-Schuster is going to be re-signed, so if he isn't, and McCole Hardman isn't, your wide receiver group includes Marquez Valdez-Scantling, then you have a guy like Sky Moore, then you have Kadarius Toney. That's pretty much your group. Maybe bring back Justin Watson. You do need a game-changing type of player, but let's be honest here. If the Chiefs let Juju Smith-Schuster walk, they're going to try to replace him through free agency. They're not going to try to replace the production of Juju through the draft for the 31st pick. But wide receiver may be the only position on the field for Kansas City that would get starting snaps early on. But we also thought Sky Moore would get starting snaps early on in the season after thriving in training camp. He didn't. Justin Watson got snaps over Sky Moore. The Chiefs like to give those snaps in weeks one through five to the veterans. And that's okay because the draft... When you aren't looking at guys that are day one starters, you can be a little bit more lax. It's not as much of a pressure-filled pick. You can go after a linebacker, and and though it wouldn't be perceived well by people here in Kansas City because you have Nick Bolden and Willie Gay, I think it's about taking the best player available because you're not getting a position of need there. There's going to be really great players that can fall to you at 31 or guys that are getting taken off the board and you want to move up in the draft. That's still fine as well. The flexibility of this pick is the best thing for Kansas City. There's no pressure on this pick because they hit on guys like Pacheco, Watson, Williams last year. When you hit on late-round picks, it's not as much of a dire need with the first pick. And I think last year, when they got McDuffie and George Karloftis, I think everybody was far more on the side of the McDuffie pick than they were the Karloftis pick. And then as the rounds went from 2 to 3 to 4 to 5, and the Chiefs are taking Darian Kennard, they're taking Leo Chennault, and you're starting to see you know, the athletic numbers on these guys, the, the PFF scores on these guys, you're going, all right, the Chiefs are just better in day two, day three, day four of the draft. And if you can figure out the method, the philosophy that Brett Veach has, then you can feel more comfortable about these picks. Day one pick may not be the sexy pick. It may be the guy that you know of, a, an Ojolari, an Enidike Uzama, a Jalen Hyatt, a, a Quinnen Johnson. I think right now the mocks still have Quinnen Johnson going early in the 20s, so you'd have to trade up for that pick. But overall, I mean, I think there's a lot of guys you can go out there, and I'd be okay with, because you also can understand that Brett Veach finds a hell of a lot of value in 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th rounds. He found starters by the end of the year in the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th round. But right now, I think it's more so about just who you're going to add to this next core. That's really where Kansas City's at. Their window was already extended last year because of getting those guys on rookie deals. I mean, to get a guy like Isaiah Pacheco with your last pick in the draft, now you have your running back position filled for the next three to four years. And who knows if Isaiah Pacheco projects to be a damn good running back in two or three years. Right now, on the surface, he's a guy that ran for over 1,000 yards and he was a seventh-round pick. And I think right now we're starting to see that Isaiah Pacheco, or we saw at the end of the year, Isaiah Pacheco will be a very reliable running back in year two, in year three, in year four. Your running back position is already filled. Think about the secondary right now. Williams, Watson, McDuffie, all guys on rookie contracts. You have a crossroads on what you want to do with Legereus Sneed, but as opposed to a year ago, I think I'm okay if Brett Veach takes the Charvarius Ward route where he lets him walk, he goes out in there and makes big money. 
because you have three young guys who can take the spot of Legereus Sneed. And also, they're going to continue to replenish the secondary through the draft. Legereus Sneed wasn't a blue-chip first-round pick. He fell to the fourth round. And he was out of Louisiana Tech. And he was a guy that switched from cornerback to safety. He was a little bit of a hybrid, just like Jalen Watson was. And Legereus Sneed was good in his rookie year, but he got so much better in year two, year three. Rashad Fenton was another guy that was found late in the draft, fifth, sixth, seventh round out of South Carolina. And he was a starting cornerback, a number two cornerback for Kansas City for two years. That's how Brett Veach operates his secondary. And I think with the linebacking core, the expectation has always been they need to fill the shoes of Derek Johnson. You know, they need to fill the shoes of a D Ford, even though D Ford is a little bit of a hybrid, kind of like, uh, who was it? Hassan Reddick. It could be a linebacker spot and also line up outside at the edge position, but mainly to fill the shoes of Derek Johnson. You want to say it's Nick Bolton, you want to say it's Willie Gay. The linebacking core is fine, but it's also why they went out and got Leo Chanel in the third round. They want depth there. They want to be able to trust guys that can come in there on second and third down to get stops. The beauty of being where the Chiefs are right now, they're not like the Rams were two years ago where they sold their soul for a Super Bowl championship, and you can't really replenish your roster with draft picks because you don't have any the Chiefs had a lot of picks last year they have a lot of picks this year and the great thing is they hit on over 70 percent of their picks from last year that doesn't happen I mean you go back to teams that are constantly drafting in the top 10 think about how many times they miss or even teams drafting in the top 15 I mean go back from 2019 to 2020 and I promise I'm not picking on them because they're a division rival the Chiefs The Raiders miss on a lot of picks. That's just common with the Raiders. They are a franchise that always seems to reach, and they draft the wrong position at the wrong time. You know, when it was Josh Allen going to the Jaguars, the Raiders went with Cleveland Farrell, who's since been an absolute bust. Josh Jacobs, for a long time, was, you know, a guy that they took really high in the draft, but wasn't really meeting expectations. Last year he did, but it was for a Raiders team that missed the playoffs. Now Derek Carr's gone. They don't really have a quarterback to replace him with. Jared Stidham I don't think is that guy. Maybe they go after an Aaron Rodgers, but the Henry Rugg situation. You know, it's more off-field stuff, so I can't really say he was a bust of a pick because he was still playing well. Damon Arnett was gone out there a few years. Jonathan Abram. A guy that was gone out there a few years. Those are franchises that even when blessed with top 15 picks, they miss on a lot of them. So in Kansas City, you need to be, I guess, understanding of the fact or never take for granted that the Chiefs are arguably better in day three of the draft than they are in day one. The two bad picks that Brett Veach has had really haven't come back to bite Kansas City. One of his first picks he ever had was Breland Speaks linebacker slash edge rusher out of Ole Miss. Brilliant Speaks was terrible. He did not last long in Kansas City. He was a guy that was a little bit out of shape, couldn't really fit a position, and he was gone. Guess what? It, it never hurt Kansas City's success. I would now chalk up the Clyde Edwards-Hilaire pick as a not very good pick in the first round, mainly because running back shouldn't be taken that high. I don't care how good they were in college. You know, unless you are Derrick Henry, there's no need for a guy to go top five at the running back position. Times have changed. Hell, I'll give Christian McCaffrey the nod as well. Unless you have those two guys on your draft board, there's no need to take a running back. Because you look at the two teams in the Super Bowl this past year, Philly and Kansas City, Miles Sanders, Boston Scott, Kenneth Gainwell, Isaiah Pacheco, Jarek McKinnon, Ronald Jones. Those are not Derrick Henry's or Christian McCaffrey's. If you've got a great quarterback, great offensive line, your running back's probably going to be pretty good. So Brett Veach, in my opinion, and he's missed a couple of times on on fifth and sixth round guys. Hell, that is more of a lottery pick than anything. But first round picks, I think Breland speaks to me and Clyde Edwards-Lair were by far and away the two worst picks he had. But it never just destroyed the future plans of Kansas City. They were players that didn't live up to expectations, but they replaced them rather quickly. And now going into this draft after winning a Super Bowl, it's not that Brett Veach is going to take a back seat, kick his feet up and say, "Ah, draft whoever you want. I really don't care. We're fine. 
it almost gives you a better chance at making the right pick because you know your roster's not in the crunch right now. You have a youthful roster. You're the best roster in the NFL, and you have a youthful roster. You've won two Super Bowls in the last four years. You've appeared in three in the last four years. You're just trying to replenish your roster with great rotational guys that will be starters. Those are picks 30, 31, and 32. You very few times see a guy just shine year one. Sometimes they do. I'm not saying it never has happened, but I think in Kansas City, we see how Andy Reid and that coaching staff operates. They don't throw rookies in the fire unless injuries happen, and that's probably the only reason. Injuries happen. You know, Jalen Watson and Joshua Williams were thrown in that situation because guys were banged up and because Traverius Ward walked and they didn't really replace anybody in the secondary. It was Fenton, it was Sneed, and that was about it. It was McDuffie and McDuffie got hurt. So there goes Williams, there goes Watson. Isaiah Pacheco got into the starting rotation because Clyde Edwards-Lair was hurt. George Karloftis got a starting spot because Frank Clark wasn't playing a lot. So you had rookies step up, but they also were thrust in that position because of injuries. And I think that's the exact same mentality they will have going into that 31st pick. Even if it's a wide receiver. Even if you go out and trade up for Quentin Johnson, I think he'll be a starter, but he'll probably be the number three. If you bring back Juju, he's the number one. MVS is the number two. I would say Tony, Sky Moore, they're probably competing for the number three, four spot, and then you got to throw a rookie in there. But I don't think the Chiefs are going after a guy like Quentin Johnston. If it's Jalen Hyatt, I don't see him starting week one or week two. If somebody underperforms or a guy like Kadarius Tony gets banged up a little bit, Juju would get banged up or MVS gets banged up, okay, then he can step into the spot. But I think fans will always jump on, on that ideology of, well, you're taking a rotational guy in the first round. That's not a bad thing because late first-round picks are the exact same as late second. It just has the title of first-round pick. And when you think first-round pick, you immediately think starter. Not when you're a Super Bowl contender every single year. The Patriots were great for years, even though Bill Belichick wasn't a great drafter. They just kept replenishing the roster with guys they trusted. They let guys walk when their contract was up, the rookie deal was up, they replaced them. And because you had a great quarterback, you had a good offensive line, and pretty much a good defense, you can just place guys in a certain spots. They're going to be good. That's why they ran roughshod over the, uh, the AFC for 20 years. Kansas City hopes to have that same type of success, but it also comes with taking guys in the first round, not you know, reaching for a running back or reaching for a wide receiver or trying to go get your number one guy. Sometimes it's taking the not very sexy pick. You know what would be a great pick for Kansas City and only a few people are talking about it? A tight end. Going out and getting a tight end in the first round with how loaded the tight end class is, that would be an A-plus pick for me in Kansas City because Travis Kelsey's going to play, give or take, I think four or five more years of really good football. That's a long time, by the way. That's not like you need to quickly find Travis Kelsey's replacement. But do you believe Noah Gray is that guy? Do you believe Blake Bell is that guy? Could you imagine if the Chiefs went out and got a top-level tight end and when Travis Kelsey needs a breather, and you also want Travis Kelsey to keep playing at a healthy level for the next four to five years? You know how you do that? Having a trustworthy guy to go out there and take 20% of those snaps. Then Travis Kelsey can extend an extra year or two to his lifespan in the NFL because the Chiefs have a reliable tight end out there. I like Noah Gray. I like Blake Bell. They're not the replacements of Travis Kelsey. Somebody you could take in the first round here could eventually be one in year three or year four. And if he's getting on the field a lot, you can kind of see that potential. That's the type of pick I want. You know, you go after a nose tackle who you eventually want to be the replacement of Chris Jones if you decide to move on from him. I'm okay seeing him take 20% of Chris Jones' snap, 10% of Chris Jones' snaps. I would be okay if on day two or day three of the draft, the Chiefs went out and got a quarterback. Not to be the replacement of Patrick Mahomes, but look what happened this year in the postseason. Chad Henney had to come into the game and he let a 99-yard touchdown drive. You have to be able to have backups, good depth pieces, if you want to keep that window open for a long time. It's not always about having the sexy pick with every single pick. Sometimes it's guys you've never heard of. You would absolutely be lying if you knew exactly who Joshua Williams was when the Chiefs took him in the fourth round. You would be lying to yourself. Out of Fayetteville State, I had no idea who Joshua Williams was. But when they went through his 
combine. They went through his athletic numbers. I go, that fits Steve Spagnuolo's defense. A long arm, tall cornerback that can hang with guys with his speed. He's agile. He's quick. That fits the scheme. Sometimes it's drafting for the scheme more so than the player. Sometimes it's best player available. But when you have the 31st pick, it's such a luxury. And especially, it's been set up because of how good you were last year, drafting on day three of the draft. So the Chiefs have such a great spot here, and I know everybody's going to panic. They're going to get nervous when it comes up to the Chiefs' spot to select. I'm going to be loving it, though, because there's really nobody they could take unless it's a running back that I would be upset with. Marco, are you kind of in the same boat here that with that 31st pick for Kansas City, it could be a linebacker, it could be a cornerback, it could be a safety, per the mock, it has B.J. Ojolari out of LSU, an edge rusher. Like, I'm okay with any pick for the defense. I really am. Linebacker's probably the one I'd go, I'll take some time to get over it. But even then, I'm going, it's fine for rotational piece because Nick Bolden and Willie Gay can't play every single snap. They need depth pieces. And that's why I look at Brett Veach and I go, you know, there's really no wrong you could do here. Wide receiver offensively or anybody on the defensive side, I'm fine with that pick. Or you on the other side of going, no, it has to be an edge rusher. No, it has to be a cornerback because that's a position of need for the Chiefs. I wouldn't say I'm uh, against either a cornerback or edge. No, I think that, if anything, those are the two positions, as of right now, not as the roster stands um, for Kansas City, um, those are the two positions that I would say are that should be the high priority if they draft in the first round because not only are they the two position groups in this draft that have a lot of depth and talent in there, but also it's a um, it's it's positions on the Chiefs' defense where you have uh, expiring contracts or uh, lots of money. I mean, that's just where the conversation's at. Simply with restructuring of veteran contracts, people jump to the Jones and Frank Clark first, then uh, some of the other notable higher-paid Chiefs still on uh, that are going to be on the that are on the roster right now for next year. So. I'm I'm good with either of those because I could I see the Chiefs moving on from somebody on that defensive line uh, or finding money or finding free money there. But also it's sides of, it's it's parts of the foot it's parts of the defense that they uh, need continuing help at simply because that was a big reason as to um, what made their defense so, uh, so good this year is the uh is the changes on the defensive line uh with personnel uh that was such a big thing as what helped the Chiefs pass rush improve significantly this season um and then in the secondary too you already mentioned with the young cornerbacks and of course uh a lot of what was of the 2022 rookie class so Legereus Sneed, although he's not a big uh, hit for you this season, I think he's only going to be making less than $3 million, I think, as far as what its hit is. Yeah, he's going to be making $2.9 million this season. So I really see it, whereas you can trade him now and get some and get a nice return pick-wise for him um, and don't have to commit to signing to an extension immediately, kind of like what we saw this last year with Charver- or No, excuse me. They didn't trade Traverius Ward, but you can get ahead of it now and kind of do the opposite of what you could have done with Traverius Ward. So I, I like I like cornerback or edge um, simply for those reasons in the first round. Yeah, I think by far and away it'd go edge rusher for me. It'd be cornerback. I'm still on the, the train of safety. I like Brian Cook. I, I think I'd like to find another guy who could maybe replace Juan Thornhill because, you know, Justin Reed's under contract the next two years. Per pro football focus on their latest mock draft, and I believe that was done by Arif Hassan. He has the Chiefs taking Josh Downs, the wide receiver out of North Carolina, an undersized wide receiver at five foot ten. Ran five foot ten. He ran a four four in the forty yard combine. But to me, you know, I just think that wide receiver. I, I I'm fine with an offensive pick. I really am. If you went tight end, you went wide receiver. Like I just said, I'm not going to be a hypocrite here. I'm going to be okay with that because it does help the team. Now it also helps the team two three years down the line. But also keep in mind, you know, they went out and had a couple of future guys to a contract here. You had, I'm um, blanking on his name right now, Marco, but the uh, Justin Ross, excuse me, Justin Ross, they had 
and the undrafted free agent market last year. He was the guy that was projected to be a first-round pick and then had to sit out last year due to health conditions. But maybe he's a guy that slides into the rotation next year. So you have these guys that can work through or battle out wide receiver spots. I just don't know if it's the main area of need. Defensively, edge, cornerback, like Marco pointed out, those are probably the top two you want. And even though you got you hit on guys like Josh Williams and Jalen Watson, you have Trent McDuffie, never hurts to have extra depth at that position because I think more so than any other position on defense, those are guys that get banged up a lot. They're running around a lot. They get a hamstring injury, a groin injury, something like that. You need guys to step up. The Chiefs got that last year, but we always know that Brett Veach drafts really well in the secondary, especially in day two or day three of the draft. So will the Chiefs go wide receiver? Will they go edge? Will they go cornerback? We'll have to wait a couple more months, and we'll certainly keep going over these mock drafts every other week or so. We'll take our first break of the show. When we come back, let's go down to Surprise, Arizona, and see how the Royals have been going in their first three games of spring training. A little spoiler alert, they are 3-0. Not that that matters too much. But who's standing out so far? Who's been showing, because they were on TV on, I believe it was Saturday, who's been showing like they can take a spot from the other guy? We'll get into all that next on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN, Kansas City. Back here on The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. Royals back in action this afternoon at 2.05 for spring training game number four. They'll be going up against the Milwaukee Brewers Royals. A perfect 3-0 to open up spring training play if you are keeping track at home. As for the lineup today... It'll be Nicky Lopez leading off and playing short. Hunter Dozier will bat second and play third. MJ Melendez will bat third and do the catching. Michael Massey will hit cleanup and play second. Samad Taylor will hit fifth and play center field. Taylor was acquired in the trade that sent Whit Merrifield to Toronto last season. Matt Beatty, an offseason acquisition, will bat sixth and play first base. Tyler Gentry, who had an incredible year down in AA Northwest Arkansas last season, he'll bat seventh and play right field. John Rave. Will bat eighth and play left field, and DH, DHing will be Luca Tresh, uh, the undrafted free agent from NC State a couple of years back. So Royals open up as we mentioned their first three games in spring training at three and zero. Some of the headlines I think from those three games. I want to start with the first one. And it goes with Josh Stallmont. I know with spring training, you never want to get caught up in the numbers. I remember for years, Mike Moustakis used to go down to surprise Arizona and tear it up. I mean, hit north of 440, hit the ball out of the ballpark multiple times. He's hitting it to left field, center field, right field, hitting line drives, hitting gaps. And then he'd come into Kansas City and he'd struggle. And that was very early on in his career. And then, of course, Mike Moustakis turned things around post-2014, and he was a fantastic third baseman for the Kansas City Royals. Not defensively, but more so offensively. But that was kind of the theme, was that Mike Moustakis would go down there, he'd shine in spring training, and get your hopes up because you think, well, good numbers must translate to good regular season numbers. Not always the case. Then there were guys that would be horrible in spring training. Bad numbers on the mound, velocity was down, you're going, there's no way they can break camp with the team. Then they'd be just fine. And, and if you're not familiar with spring training and what some of these players do, it's all about working on things. You know, you could be going through batting practice. You know, right now you have guys like Alex Zumwalt and Keone Duren working with these guys offensively. There could be a guy like, let's say, Bobby Wood Jr., and he's got a little bit of a hitch in his swing, or he needs to be open a little bit more with his stance, or his hands need to be higher, he needs to hit more line drives. They'll tweak his swing a little bit. It may feel uncomfortable. He may go out there the next day and go 0 for 3 with 3 strikeouts, or 0 for 2 with 2 strikeouts before he's pulled. But it's benefiting him for the regular season. You're working on things. Uh, Danny Lynch, Daniel Lynch, started Game 1 for the Royals in spring training. He didn't have the best of numbers. He only threw 2 innings and allowed 3 runs and 4 hits, but he didn't walk anybody. And I'm sure going into that game, they were telling him, whatever you do, don't try to nibble, don't try to miss the zone, attack the zone. Because that is the slogan, that is the message of Royals pitchers this season, is raid the zone. Work on your pitch, work on your curveball, work on your slider. You may get hit around a bit, but it's about getting comfortable with that pitch because these games just don't matter. But back to the headline from Game 1, I think it goes with Josh Stallmont for me because the Royals' bullpen is going to be 
pretty much relying on two or three guys to anchor a lot of those close one-run games, the back half of the games, the 7th, 8th, and ninth. It's going to come down to about two or three guys. I'll add in a fourth because early on, they're going to be trying a lot of different guys out there. They're going to be trying a new setup guy, a new closer. You know, they say Scott Barlow's J.J. Bacola said J- Scott Barlow is the closer. They also signed a role Chapman this offseason. So who knows what the Royals are going to do with the ninth inning guy. But Josh Stalmont went out there on Friday, had a clean inning, struck out two. He was sitting about 94 to 97 per Annie Rogers of MLB.com, who covers the Royals, and topped out at 99. Couple things to factor in here. The radar gun's always hot and surprised. So when you see a tweet or you're watching the game and you see the number maybe get inflated a little bit, you'll see, you know, a guy like Josh Stalmont touch 102 or 103. It's not always that fast. It's close to it. It's not going to be 103 and he really threw it 96. It'll be a couple of miles per hour off. So I think Josh Stalmont was sitting firm at about 95, 97, 98. But tops out at 99 per the radar gun down there in surprise. And to me, I thought, this bullpen is going to be predicated on three guys pitching very well and very well early on. Scott Barlow is the no-brainer, right? You need Scott Barlow to be your ninth-inning guy early on. He is the Royals' best pitcher. He's been underrated, I think, for a long time. He wasn't as great last year as he was the year before that. His velocity dipped a bit. He had to rely more on his curveball and his slider. But when when Scott Barlow is on... There are few pitchers or back-end guys in the American League that are better than Scott Barlow. The only unfortunate part for Scott Barlow is he's been pitching on terrible teams. Scott Barlow has never gotten the chance to go pitch on a postseason contending team. But Scott Barlow, to me, is that anchor. He is the guy that if he is locked down just like he has been the last couple of years in that ninth-inning spot, the Royals' bullpen's really going to boost. The second guy who I think is going to be a major part of this bullpen, and moving forward at that, it's Dylan Coleman. Now, Dylan Coleman had a very Dylan Coleman type of outing in his first and only spring training outing. He threw a scoreless inning. He walked two. He struck out two. was pumping triple digits. But when Dylan Coleman was on last year, he was better than Scott Barlow. I think that's a fact. That's my opinion. You can just say it as opinion. I think it was a fact, though. When Dylan Coleman threw strikes and his slider had that bite, there was nobody more unhittable on the entire Royals staff than Dylan Coleman. I'll go back to that game he had against the Yankees. They were pitching in New York. He was pitching in New York. It was a one-run game. It might have been tied. I think it was scoreless 0-0. He goes out there, sold-out crowd. It's loud. And the... I guess the whole environment had got his adrenaline pumping. He was sitting 101, 102, and they were flailing at his slider. I think he got out of it on eight or nine pitches. That just didn't happen for Dylan Coleman a lot last year because he got behind guys. He was down 2-0. He'd walk the leadoff guy. He'd walk two in an inning, but could always get out of it because guys weren't squaring him up. But when Dylan Coleman was on, he was not very hittable. So he is the second guy on my list. And the third is Josh Stalmont. Josh Starmont went through these weird phases last year where he could sit 98, 99, 100, and he'd throw a perfect inning. Perfect inning, pair of strikeouts, just like he did in spring training. Then there'd be some outings where Josh Starmont would come on into a game in the seventh of the eighth inning, and he'd be down to 93 or 94, and you're going, okay, an IL stint is upcoming for Josh Starmont. He shouldn't have a velocity dip that severe. He should not be dropping four or five or six miles an hour. But it was so inconsistent because then, two days later, Josh Stalmont said 97, 98, 99. And I'll go back to the COVID year. And the COVID year is an exception, of course, because guys went into that year thinking, it's a 60-game season, there's nobody in the ballpark, I can go air it out. And he and Trevor Rosenthal were pumping gas in the 8th and ninth inning just back-to-back every other night. Stalmont sitting 100, 101, 102 like Dylan Coleman, but he was unhittable. There were times he got nicked up a little bit, but when that curveball was working, he had the best curveball of anybody in the system. Major leagues, triple-A, double-A, single-A. There was no more frightening curveball in the Royals' bullpen or starting rotation or down in the minor leagues than Josh Stalmont's. It's an 80-grade type of curveball. But when he can't locate it, it doesn't matter. So when I'm listening to the game on Friday and I'm hearing how Josh Stalmont's pitching, it really comes down to command. But a lot of it, too, is maintaining that velocity. Maybe Josh Stalmont's a guy that can only go once every four days. 
But I'm okay with Josh Stallman going once every four days, and he's not the locked-in seventh or eighth inning guy if it means every third or fourth game he's throwing 99 or 100. It's not good to use Josh Stallman when he's throwing 93-94. He doesn't present anything differently. That There's nothing that he would do that is beneficial to the team in the back end of that bullpen if he's sitting 93-94 with an okay-ish curveball. But when he's on, he's got the 80-grade curve and the velocity's up. That's going to change this bullpen. And the beauty of it is the Royals went out and added a couple of guys that can bridge the gap in the 7th, 8th, and ninth inning. Aroldis Chapman, maybe the team's closer, maybe he's the setup guy. We don't really know yet. He hasn't pitched yet in spring training. Andy Rogers reported yesterday that he was scheduled to pitch, but they decided to give him an extra day of rest due to something that happened at home. She now reported this morning that Aroldis Chapman slipped and fell in his home and busted open his lip and chipped the tooth. His lip is still pretty swollen. He was throwing the day, but they may give him an extra day of rest. So no structural damage for Aroldis Chapman with his arm or anything like that. But maybe he is the guy that is the Royals' closer, and it's about bridging the gap to Chapman, who has been doing that for a very long time at the highest of levels in the most high octane type of environments. Yankee Stadium and the Wrig- and Wrigley Field when the Cubs won the World Series in 2016. Like he's pitched for some big time franchises and now he's here in Kansas City, maybe you just give him that spot because he's done it before. You expect him to bounce back or he's the 7th rate inning guy. Taylor Clark who's had lower back soreness is another guy that could bridge the gap to the 7th, 8th and ninth inning. There are guys in this bullpen that are going to be I think better than people expect. Uh, you know, it was I was talking with Max Reaper of Royals Review last week, and you would have heard that uh, interview on Friday here on the shift. He was basically saying that I think this bullpen's going to be a lot better than people think because with a new pitching staff and coaching staff at that, some of these guys are going to have different philosophies. And if they're attacking the zone, they've got guys that got stuff. So that, to me, was the biggest headline, mainly involving Josh Stallmont. But if you have these guys with stuff and they can attack the zone, it changes the outlook of your season. The Royals had guys with stuff last year. They could not find the zone. They could not hit water if they fell out of a boat. I mean, nothing worked for that team, and you basically relied on guys randomly finding the zone in the middle of the inning. That was what the Royals' back end of the bullpen was like. Sometimes they were on, sometimes they were off. And it won or lost a lot of games for the Royals. They need more consistency, and I think it starts with Josh Stomont being that 6th or 7th inning guy every three or four days. The second headline I got, and it more so came from Saturday, when the Royals were on TV, they won 10-5. to I think what is so you know, interesting in the restructuring of this roster from, I would say, eight months ago to now. Hell, I'll go more so, uh, let's go six months ago, when the Royals had all the aging veterans out there. And it just wasn't a very exciting lineup. Then they go with the younger group. But still, there were these these guys that hung on. And I think on Saturday, the veteran that I saw that I was really trying to make a case for, and I don't want to because he's a guy that I don't think is going to fit in past this year, but it was Hunter Dozier. And Hunter Dozier hit second, he played third, and he was 2 for 3 with an RBI in the day. Hunter Dozier had one good year at the Major League level, and it was in a year where the Royals lost 100-plus games. They lost 103. So it didn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. But to this point, we haven't seen a third baseman emerge for Kansas City. You have Matt Duffy, who you brought in on a minor league deal. He could, I guess, be the opening day third baseman. He's got very much of an outside chance because he's not that much different than Hunter Dozier. You know, Nate Eaton's a guy I really like. Haven't seen him at third base much in spring training through the first three games. He played second base. He's a utility guy. But again, maybe they don't want a guy that's barely played third base be the opening day third baseman. I guess the most exciting news the Royals had was that Michael Garcia was going to play some third base. Matt Quattraro said, hey, it doesn't hurt to put him at third base because we don't know what's going to happen this season. Some guys get banged up. Some guys underperform. Michael Garcia is the Royals' best prospect. But he's also a better defender at short than Bobby Witt Jr. But, of course, you don't want to move Bobby Witt Jr. off shortstop and put him at third base. But to me, it's it's Hunter Dozier's spot right now. And that's going to sound bad to Royals fans. But keep in mind, you know, Hunter Dozier, when he has been good, Hits the ball harder than, I would say, 80-85% of the lineup. And I know that I have come on this show before and harshly criticized Hunter Dozier. Didn't understand why he's in the lineup. But I'm trying to, in spring training, see a reason. 
or, or look through more of a positive lens here and see why the Royals would still value Hunter Dozier at third base. A large part of it is that he's under contract, they're paying him a lot of money, and hell, they don't have another third baseman. If there was another guy, Hunter Dozier wouldn't have a spot here. Hunter Dozier would not be playing a lot in spring training. The reality is, more than any other position, the Royals are incredibly thin at third base. Their third baseman in the future, Caden Wallace, who they took in the second round of the draft last year out of Arkansas, he's not ready yet. He's a college guy. He may be ready next year. He's not ready now. And the Royals aren't in win-now mode. So it really comes down to, do you want stability at third? Do you want to gamble? I think the Royals are more willing to gamble in June or July than they are in April or May. You know, I think they're okay giving Hunter Dozier one more chance, and if he sucks... Then you can move on. Then you can go with the Nadine. and then you can go with a Matt Duffy. Then you can go with a Michael Garcia. But sometimes it's not always sunshine and rainbows. It's just throwing rookies out there. You know, I think it'd be fun and exciting if Michael Garcia is at third, Bobby Wood Jr. is at short, Michael Mass is at second, and Vinny Pasquantino is at first. That's a fun lineup. You know what they're going to do a lot of though? Lose. They're going to lose a lot, and maybe Hunter Dozier too at third baseman will lose just as much as more. But in baseball. It's all about putting guy, putting trust in guys early in the season. It's why last year the Royals really didn't move off a lot of guys for a while because they didn't trust some of those young guys to come in immediately and have the weight of expectation of winning right off the bat. So I watched that game on Saturday and I thought, you know, Hunter Dozier in spring training, it wasn't that I was impressed with him. I'm just going, man, I don't know if I can see another guy emerging out of that spot. Now, Matt Duffy was two for three as well. He was impressive, and I think some of the fun things to look at, too, was it was Tucker Bradley, also has been a guy, just young guys that stood out to me on that Saturday game, Tucker Bradley, who also had the walk-off on Friday. He just looks like a professional hitter. I know Royals Farm Report always says Tucker Bradley is a professional hitter. I was very impressed with a guy like Tyler Tolbert, crushed a home run, a three-run home run, I believe it was, was early in the game, also had an incredible catch in center field. And then also you have a guy like Tyler Gentry who could filter into this outfield rotation at some point in the year. I also was pretty impressed with Nick Prado. You know, had a pair of RBIs in the game. And Nick Lofton, who looks much bigger. David Lesky pointed that out on Twitter at DB Lesky. He said he looks bitter, bigger. And then also in that same sentence, he crushed a home run over the bullpen in left field. So some young guys really thrived on Saturday for the Royals in a 10-5 win over the Rangers. And then yesterday, the guy I watched and was really impressed with, Fran Mill Reyes. I-, I hate it at times when they're just on radio, not on TV. You can't see how far some of the balls go when they hit them. It sounded like Fran Mill Reyes absolutely demolished his first home run of spring. And fortunately, Andy Rogers had the Twitter video go out later, and he hit it 460 feet to left field. Uh, Fran Mill Reyes is going to make this roster. He's a minor league deal, a non-roster invite, Fran Mill Reyes will be the designated hitter for the Royals this year. There's no and ifs or buts about it. As long as he stays healthy, it's going to be his spot. I mean, he's 27 years old. He still could fit into the future here. But to me, it really feels like when I listen to the game on Sunday, I mean, they have expectation for Fran Mill Reyes. And in the offseason, J.J. Picole was looking for a big-time bat, a guy that was affordable, but a guy that could play a corner outfield spot, needed to have a middle part of that lineup, a fourth, fifth, or sixth, and really... I don't know if there's a better value deal that the Royals could have gotten than Fran Mill Reyes. A minor league deal for a guy that two years ago hit 30-plus home runs and terrorized Royals pitching in Cleveland for a couple of years. You know, it could go very much like the Carlos Santana type of deal where he had a couple of big moments. I mean, the good thing for the Royals is Fran Mill Reyes was on a minor league contract. They didn't pay him two or a two- or three-year deal worth $30 million or $35 million. He's a very cheap, very valuable type of player that still fits in to this youthful roster. He's only a couple months older than Edward Olivares, who we all consider to be one of the youthful guys that will be around for a while. If Fran Mill Reyes continues to hit, he will be this team's DH. So the Royals 3-0 and right now through spring training. They'll be playing later on today against the Milwaukee Brewers. It will be Zach Greinke getting his first start of the spring, going up against Adrian Hauser. The fun thing about Zach Greinke, if you plan to listen to the game today, there are outings in which he just throws one pitch. He just wants to work on one pitch. Maybe it's his changeup. Maybe it's his slow curveball. Maybe it's his fastball. He's going to work on a couple of things. And the Royals could win 12 to 11, or they could lose 10 to 1. It doesn't matter what you want to look for. It's just where some of these guys are fitting in. It's all about storylines in spring training. Same thing like the preseason in the NFL. You just look for certain guys and spots, and sometimes the numbers don't matter. 
They're striking out a lot. They're driving a lot of guys. They're hitting the ball out of the yard. Maybe it's plate discipline. You want to look at that. Maybe it's a velocity uptake like you see with the pitchers. It's all about sort of shaping out this roster. And you want to see these guys perform and perform well. But at the end of the day, I think this Royals lineup is pretty much all but set. Now it's about how those depth pieces really fit in. So Josh Stallmont to me, Hunter Dozier to me, and Fran Mill Reyes were kind of the three big headlines through the first three games of spring training. Royals will, I guess, go and look to stay undefeated later on this afternoon. First pitch will be at 2.05. Just about a couple minutes left in the show. And before we send you off and come back on Tuesday, let's tell you what happened on Saturday in the Big 12. Oklahoma topped Iowa State, who's in an absolute free fall now. The Sooners win 61-50 to in Hilton Coliseum. They cover the 7.5-point spread. TCU won in the thriller against Texas Tech in Lubbock, all but eliminating, I think, Texas Tech's chances at winning or getting into the NCAA tournament. They'll likely be a 9 or a 10 seed in Kansas City here next weekend in the Big 12 tournament. Baylor beat Texas 81-72, to bumping Texas out of first place with Kansas. Kansas State won 73-68 over Oklahoma State in Stillwater, snapping a five-game road slide in the Big 12. And Kansas narrowly escaped a near-disastrous upset against West Virginia, winning 76-74 at home. West Virginia covered the 9.5-point spread, but now Kansas holds the top spot in the Big 12. They stand alone one game ahead of Texas. And here's the important thing here. Texas still has to go on the road and play TCU in Fort Worth, a much healthier TCU team. And all Kansas has to do to at least clinch a share of the Big 12 title is beat Texas Tech at home on Tuesday night. Tip-off will be at 8 p.m. As for Kansas State, after winning on the road against Oklahoma State, their final two will come against Oklahoma at home. They'll play on Wednesday at 7 p.m., and then they will finish up the regular season against West Virginia in Morgantown on Saturday, March 4th. Tip-off for that game will be at 1 p.m. So as for the Big 12, Kansas, the front-runner, 16 games in at 12-4, and 24-5 and overall. Texas at 11 and 5 in conference play, 22 and 7 overall. Kansas State tied with Baylor for third place. They are 10 and 6 overall, 22 and 7 for the Cats, 21 and 8 for the Bears. TCU 8 and 8 in conference play. They're 19 and 10 overall. Iowa State now 8 and 8. They're 17 and 11 overall. The Cowboys of Oklahoma State 7 and 9 in conference play, 16 and 13 overall. Texas Tech 5 and 11 in conference play, 16 and 13 overall. West Virginia also at 5 and 11 in conference play, 16 and 13 overall. And rounding out the bottom of the Big 12 is the Oklahoma Sooners at 4-12 and 14-15 and 14 and 15 overall. The only Big 12 team that is sub-500 overall this season. There is Ray Charles, so it's time to go. That wraps up another edition of The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I've been your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. We will talk to you tomorrow at 10 AM. You take it easy, Kansas City.